0: Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? Now we need to make a test first and see if everyone can hear me. I hope so. If not, we'll get after it. Okay. Sounds good to me. It seems like everyone can do it. So uh, this is my first experience with uh, this method of teaching, this format of teaching. So all of you will bear with me. Uh, it's more technical than I thought, but uh, the great Ray Peterson has been helping me try to learn it. And hopefully I haven't forgotten everything he has taught me in the, in the past few days. So Bez Hashem, with God's help, will make a success of the whole thing. So I want to jump right immediately, actually, into everything that we can possibly talk about within the next hour. <clears throat> and really what I have in mind and what I really want to be able to share with you is uh, we entitled it uh, called Climbing the Ladder, or actually really what it really is, is changing the way that we think. Because I know, even from my past experience, and especially from my experience in teaching classes for so many years, um, largely to non-Jewish audiences, so many times uh, what we really, really need to do is people are thinking in a certain way, and then the sages of Israel are thinking oftentimes in the exact opposite way. <laughs> so we are doing all of this study with the sages of Israel, and we are trying to really learn from the great rabbis and from the from the Mishnah, and the Gemara, and the Midrashim, and all of the oral Torah. And, but there's a problem because sometimes we're not exactly speaking the same language, uh, and it all has to do with uh, the, the, the method of the way we think. So with God's help, I mean, He, he completely. it's not that I uh, am such a genius, but he, he completely put the exact right books in my hands and uh, the exact correct rabbis for us to look at. And so, really, that's what I want to do uh, with this series. And uh, who knows how long it will last? And will last as long as it lasts. And we'll just go along. We'll take our time. We won't be in such a big hurry. If the Mashiach comes in the meantime, that's good. Then we can go in and attend his class, and it'll be okay. So let's just hang in there together, and we'll do the best that we can. So let's let's start. There's something that we have to talk about from the very very start, and if you can see it there on your screen, it's a, a couple of concepts, a couple of Hebrew words, and they are concepts uh, uh, in Judaism uh, called the simsum and the Kava. Now, just to give a, a small bit of background, and the reason we have to talk about this is because this is one of the things that we have to begin to do to change the way we think. And I honestly, I, I don't know everyone's background. I don't know... Uh, uh, I've, I've looked at some of the teachers on the Nations. They're, they're very, very high-level teachers. If you've been receiving an education from them, then everything I may be telling you may not be uh, – you may not need it. But uh, – but and, and you know, and I'm always told that, uh, that we have to uh, stay away from the Kabbalah. I don't even, you know, hardly even say this word anymore. It's become so unpopular. So sometimes I say the K word, you know, we're talking about the K word. But but the bottom level of the line of the whole thing is all of Judaism, whether we admit it or whether we don't admit it, we think kabbalistically. Our level of thinking is on the level of the Kabbalah. And by the way, and, and by the way, we're going to find out that the Kabbalah is not hocus pocus. It's not this. It's not that. It really is like uh, Rav Mikhail Leitman says. It's a science. It's a science on the study of the universe, and that's all that it is. And it really uh, will help us. So we're going to learn it a little bit different, not that the Kabbalah is different from other teachers or not that, that the level, the soul level of learning is different from other teachers, but we are going to learn it in a certain way from a certain perspective that I think will help us tremendously and really actually get to the core of everything about it uh, because some people, you know, they come, they come to this area of study and, of course, immediately they're picking up books and they're, they're learning this and they begin to learn about the Ten Road the, and the four different universes, which are actually five and, and all of this, and, it, and they get lost in the language. We have to understand the Kabbalah is actually called the language. Really what it is is it's what's called the language of the branches, and we'll talk about that a little more. But basically what that means is it's a code, and if we don't understand the code and we come and we take it and we're trying to take some, sometimes things in a very literal manner, then we can misunderstand it and we can get in trouble. But anyway, let's take the first step here. Uh, the great Arizo, the Ari, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, a uh, 16th century great great rabbi who really, in fact, if we actually look at the entire history of the soul, the level, the secret, the hidden meaning, the inner dimension of the torah level of the of the oral Torah throughout history, up until just lately, it has been only been taught from one rabbi to one student from one great master to a to a master student, and it was only passed from mouth to ear, even when some of the rabbis you know over the past couple of hundred years began to write books on these subjects and everything. People would read the books and they would be totally lost. Uh, uh, they didn't really understand what was going on because the, it, the books weren't coming with the explanation. No one was giving us kind of like a, a glossary of terms, you know, of what this means and what that means and all of these things. But anyway, through the centuries, as, as it went along, uh, this was the method of teaching. And really not until the Ari, the Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, was, was anyone able to really come and do what's called a systematization. Now, you'll forgive me. I have a lot of trouble with the English language sometimes. So if I say things funny, you just say, well, you know, what can we do with him? Anyway, but a system. And so he looked into the Holy Zohar and studied it most of his life. And by the way, he died very, very young, as many, many of the great uh, masters did. But uh, he looked and he began to, to develop a system. And he actually gave us really the first... Explanation in a sense of just how God created the universe, and what you see on the screen in front of you that is his classic his very, very classic illustration. He simply drew a circle on a piece of paper and then he drew a line. So what in the world does this does this mean? This seems soon. What does that mean? That means something that's constricted, something that is reduced. and uh, in the Ezheim, the Ezheim now is a book. Excuse me, is a book that was written actually by Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Chaim Vital was the number one student of the Ari. The Ari really didn't write anything other than a few songs, but the the Eitzheim, Rabbi Chaim Vital wrote all of these things down for us that the Ari taught, and he describes the way the Etzheim does describes the way that God that Hashem brought the world into existence. And these are from the words of the Ari in the Etzheim. He says, before all things were created, the supernal life or the, or the ein sof, and actually, and I know most of you are already familiar with this, I should have done a much better illustration than this and put outside this circle uh, the, the name Ein-Soph. Ein-Soph in Hebrew is a reference to Hashem, simply that He is without end. Ein, without, sof end. Meaning that He, is the, he was the only being. There was no other being other than him. In fact, the very title Ain Sof tells us that there was no no one else. Otherwise, that, that name doesn't even mean anything. And the problem was, the problem, as if there could be a problem to the shim. But the problem was, and so that's just so to speak, was that there wasn't any space. There was no space to create. Because the Ain Soph was everything. The Ain Soth filled everything. There wasn't anything separate from him or anything else. So, the Ari tells us that before all things were created, the supernal light, the or en the light of the en the light of Hashem, was simple. It was complete. It was perfect. It was one. There were no divisions in it. There weren't gra- grades in it or degrees in it. And it filled all existence, he says. There was no empty space which could be characterized as space or an emptiness or a void. There was no vacant lot, in other words, to build on, is what the Ari is trying to say. And everything was filled with that simple or ensof, the light of the infinite one. There was no category of beginning. And he says and there was no category of end. And everything, all, was one simple, undifferentiated, infinite light. And when it arose in his simple will. Now, the Ari uses this word simple a lot. It just, it simply means, it really means in the sense of perfect. Perfectly simple, not divided, not complicated. So when it arose in his simple will to create worlds, and then the Ari says, and to emanate emanations, creation and the emanations, things that come out of God, are not exactly the same. We'll learn that as we go along. But what did he do? He constricted or he withdrew his infinite essence away from the very center point of his life. Now, everybody says, now how, do, how did the Ari know it was the center point? Well, <laughs> because infinity has no center point, okay? The Ensof has no center point. But that's only said from the point of view of the space that's about to be created. And the second that Hashem constricted himself away from that space, that became the center of absolutely everything. And then he withdrew that light, the Ari tells us, even further, distant, distancing it to the extremities around that center, post, center point. And that left what we call a vacated space and a hollow void. Now we have space. By the way, can you imagine how, just, just to give you some idea of the bigness of God, we can't even find the end of the vacated space just on our level of creation. We can't find the end of it. And Hashem is outside of it uh, that's just un- as well as inside of it. That's unbelievable. After this constriction, it says, which resulted in the creation of this hollow void, or this vacated space, in the very midst of the light of the Ainsul, now there was a place for everything, and these are terms, speaking of the universes, and I'll just mention them here because we'll work on them much more later on. Working on this is not what I want to do tonight, and we'll talk about them much more later on. But the Ari mentions them here in the text of the, of the Eitz the Tree of Life. So I, I want to be true to his words. So now in this hollow void, there was a space or a place for everything that was to be emanated, and that is a reference to the world of Atzilut, okay? The universe of Atzilut. There was everything that was placed for everything that was to be created. And that is a reference to the level of the, the universe of Briya or creation. And there was, every, there was a place now for everything that was to be formed, and that's the universe of Yetzirah. And there now was a place for everything that was to be completed, and that's the world that we live in, this material, physical universe, the world of action, Asiyah. And we'll talk much more about all of these things later on, and I'll do a better illustration, I promise. Okay? So then... Hashem then drew a single straight kav. The kav is the single line that you see going down to the center of this vacated space. He drew a single straight kav or a line or a ray down from his infinite surrounding light into the vacated space. And that kav had to descend in stages into the vacated space. The upper extremity of that kav touched the infinite light of the Ein that surrounded all that space, okay, and if I can get the page turned, and it extended down into the vacated space towards the center, but it did not go all the way through. It did not go all the way to the bottom extremity because if it had, it would have caused the vacated space to have collapsed and merged back into God's infinite light. And it was through this cave, this pipeline, if you will, this conduit, that the light of the ein Soph was drawn down. And also in a restricted manner, okay, and spread out below. And through this Kav, the outpouring of the supernal light of Ain Sulf, it spreads forth and it flows down into all the universes that are located within that hollow space in that empty void. And in other words, the creation began. Now, what can we learn from this that I, that I want you to hang on to and that I want you to stick with, uh, or, or to stick with you? And it can actually begin already to change the way you think. Well, number one, uh, and, and I promise I'll do a better job of illustrating, but before, if we didn't have this circle here, if we only had just a blank sheet of paper as the aim self in, in a, just a two-dimensional model, and this is all of the models that we use, by the way, to ever talk about Hashem, are totally inadequate, absolutely inadequate because He has no limits, He has no limitations. He's, he's so much beyond anything that we could imagine, but just just for our educational purposes, and the sheet of paper was infinite. It went everywhere. There was no end to it. And then God decides that He wants to create, so He has to withdraw Himself from the and wherever it is because it's infinite. Then it becomes the center. So He has to withdraw Himself, and that's what the Ari is talking. He doesn't draw a circle. He literally. His light leaves inside this circle, and now it's an empty void and then he re-enters it through this cove in a measured manner, and he must do it in a measured manner, you know, and sometimes people get really hot at me, you know they they fuss at me a little bit and say, "What are you talking about what do you What do you mean in a measured manner? Does that mean?" Does that mean my relationship with God is it's not with the with the, the absolute fullness of God with the, the fullness of Hashem? No, that's not what I mean at all. Of course it is anyone's relationship with God. Hashem is Hashem is in His fullness, whether it's in a speck or or, or in the Ain Sof. But the deal is is us as created beings. If we were to plug in directly to the Ain Sof, we would not be able to exist. So Hashem restricts His light, or He He He. Seems soon. This concept of seems soon. The constriction. Uh, he he makes it smaller only so that we can handle it. Uh, my friend Reb Avraham Sutton in Israel says it's it's, it's like uh, for us to think that we could actually plug in as a human being into the Ain sof itself would be like trying to plug a a light bulb into a nuclear reactor. Guess what? No more light bulb. So that's the idea. So he re entered this empty space, and by the way, as soon as his light left this space, this actually is the origin of the possibility of evil in the world. Because evil is simply the absence of his light. And we'll learn more and more about this also. But the thing that can stick with us here is Hashem. This is how Hashem exists, both inside of this vacated space, and by the way, it's only inside this space that time is present because we have to, have to have time, we have to have space, and we have to have matter, and we have to have energy that moves the matter. the matter. The matter must be in movement, and that causes the measurement of time. So Hashem is both inside of time, but he's also out here as the Ein-Soph. He's still the infinite ein and and always will be, so he is also outside of time. These are just very important concepts that we just need to start with. Now you can say, well, that doesn't change my way of thinking at all. You know, I have—I uh, can't begin to tell you the number of people that I have taught and dealt with, and their idea of Hashem is is almost like he's a small human being somewhere. You know, some old grandfather human being sitting on a throne somewhere in some located space. Okay, they have no idea that everything. In the entire universe that we know, just our level of the universe, the material physical universe, all of it obviously now is inside of him, and he exists both inside and outside of it. It's uh, that's an amazing concept. It, this also is an absolutely perfect illustration for the for this teaching of the sages that everything comes from Hashem. We can see, of course, it does, he, as the Ain Sulf out here outside of this circle. Everything that comes to us, everything that comes into the created world is only from him, strictly put. Okay, let's move on a little bit, and hopefully we'll really get into something now if I don't get bogged down. <coughs> we really want to move now to a particular rabbi, Rabbi Yehudah Levashlag. He was known as the Baal HaSulam. The Baal HaSulam simply means the master of the ladder. I can't begin to tell you the importance of this rabbi and the great favor that he did to us. He was born, as, the, as it says here, he was born in Warsaw in Poland into a very Hasidic family in 1886. I think he got married when he was about 20 years old and married, uh, uh, married and uh, also became a rabbi, excuse me. Uh, but he, he found that being a congregational rabbi wasn't, wasn't really what uh, his thing was. And at the age of 36, he moved his family to Jerusalem. Now, in the early 1900s, that was no easy feat. Uh, It was still under the Turks. Uh, They had to go by uh, wagon and by foot and by ship and all of these things, and he moved his pretty large family uh, to Jerusalem. And uh, Jerusalem, for those of you who have been there, was in a totally different world and a totally different place back then. Uh, I I know very well what it was like, and I have the highest respect for him, what he did here. In 1926, he began to write uh, just over what we have on the page here, his major works, and his major works, the first one <coughs> was Panim Meirot, Upanim Panim Masbirot, and that was actually two different commentaries written on the, the Eitz Chaim, the Tree of Life of the Arizal, written by Rebbe Chaim Vital. But that book also, the Eitz Chaim, uh, it also, if any of you have any, any pieces of the Eitz Chaim, it's, it's several, a lot of volumes, it also is written in a, in a Kabbalistic code. To be honest with you, people read it, and uh, they tell me they understand it, and uh, after five minutes of conversation with them, I realize they don't understand it uh, because they don't understand the code. Anyway, so one of the things that Rabbi Yehuda Lev Ashwad, one of the things that he wanted to do was to begin to make these these things available to people. In other words, where he would decipher the code for them, or he would give them the keys to be able to understand the code of the great rabbis like the Yarizal. Uh, of uh, the, the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon of uh, the, the the book of uh, Sefer Yetzirah, all of the, the Bahir, all of these things. He would be able to begin to tell us what the code is. And so he wanted to write and talk to us about understanding the language of the branches. And I do want to talk about that in a second. Let's finish with what, he's, what he did here. In 1933, he began, and this was his great monumental work, called Talmud Esar HaSefirot, which is the study, a study of the ten Sefirot. And uh, then in 43, he wrote Salam, meaning actually meaning the meaning of the ladder. And he wrote that on the Zohar, giving explanations of the language of the branches. Um, and unfortunately, I wish he was still with us, but he died in Israel in 1954. Now, one other thing I want to mention about him, and really we could take a very long time and just talk about him and his life and what he did and what he meant uh, he was so important. Uh, but one other thing I want to mention is that he actually began a work to 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 give us a complete explanation on the language of the branches by making a glossary. He made it through the, through the letter Aleph and through the letter Beit uh, before he passed away. And the only thing that really held him up was Rabbi Yehuda Lev believe it or not, was one of the poorest of the poorest of people in the entire world. And uh, I mean, he had a lot of students, but they also were very poor, and he lived in great poverty. And he simply was unable to buy the paper in order to uh, to finish to finish uh, his work on that. So he didn't make it very far. But what he did leave us is so important. One other thing to mention is he realized the system, the what the, the system of way, the inner dimension of the Torah had been passed from generation to generation, all the way from the time of Abraham, that it was passed from the mouth of the teacher uh, to the ear of the student, and it was kept actually very secret this way, and it was not known widespread, even though even though when we come to Judaism, uh, and I hear people say that sometimes, you know, well, I don't like that sidur, there's too much Kabbalah in it my goodness all of Judaism the the thinking of all of Judaism is this level of thinking and uh but Rabbi Yehuda Lev Ashlang had insight and by the way this may be based part of it's based actually on on the Baal Shem Tov on a, a story that is told about the Baal Shem Tov not just a story it's actually a letter that he wrote talking about that you know he had a uh an out of body kind of experience and and was in the heavens and uh, was actually attending the yeshiva of the of, of the messiah himself and so of course time came for questions and the baal Shem Tov raised his hand he had a question and the mashiach says okay rabbi israel what is your what is your question and he says why aren't you here why aren't you there yet why haven't you come yet what's the big holdup? what's the problem and the mashiach told the baal Shem Tov, listen you know he said i'm going to come he said i will be coming when your level of teaching and your level of learning, meaning in the inner dimension of the Torah, when that begins to be spread over all the world. And, and he said, actually, this idea, and, and it really, and see, even this, basically, what's the Meshach telling the Baal Shem Tov? When, when the inner dimension of the Torah, and the Torah is the key, but when the, when the inner dimension of the Torah begins to be spread over the world, your understanding of it, Uh, that will change the way people think. And when people change the way they think, the entire universe becomes a different place to them. And that, according to all of the great Kabbalists, is the generation of the Mashiach, the generation that the Messiah will come. So really what we are studying is very important. And by the way, I I completely forgot, You forgive me, because at the very beginning of this study I wanted to mention something. You'll understand it more and more and more as we go along. It may not mean so much to you now, and you may say, well, oh, what's he making a big deal out of that thought? But you'll, be, you'll know why it's a big deal later on. But any time we come together as a class and begin to study the Torah, uh, let's, let's put it in our hearts and put it in our brains that in the back of our mind, the reason that we are studying, there's a concept that Rabbi Ashnag is going to talk about a whole lot. It's called Tamut Torah Mishma. Talmud, the study of the Torah, Nishma, for her sake, for her own sake, not for our sake, but for her sake. And But nobody ever tells you actually what that means. Well, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Levashlag, he's brave enough, he has the chutzpah to actually tell us what that means. And it's very simple. It means that every time we sit to study the Torah together, or any time that we sit to study the Torah, whether it's in this class or any class or whatever we're doing By the way, it really applies to absolutely everything that we think, say, and do. We should have in the back of our minds that the reason we are doing this is to please Hashem, to please, as Rabbi Ashlag says, our Father who is in heaven, to give him contentment, to make him proud of us. And that will become more and more important as we go along. Uh, you'll, You'll really begin to see this. Uh, it's it's so important. I can't begin to tell you. Anyway, Rabbi Yehuda Leavashan, based on based both on the 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 idea from many other rabbis like the Baal Shem talking about uh, the idea that uh, the soul level, the the understanding, uh, you know, I'm trying not to use the k word too much. I don't want to run anybody off. But but this level of this level of understanding, this level of thinking, would be disseminated everywhere. Yeah, before the Mashiach would come. And Rabbi Leib Ashlag, he also, from certain passages in the Zohar and from certain certain writings of the Arizal, and actually examining, believe it or not, particular letters in the Zohar, before his death, He and I don't think he would have considered himself a prophet in any way, but before his death he wrote a piece that that uh, uh, in one of his notebooks that actually said, that as far as he could figure out, around the year 19 and 95, that there was going to be a new influence, Hashem was going to put a new influence into the world, that was going to actually begin to cause people to come to both come to him and to begin to study this level of Torah. And what makes this level of Torah, you know, so good, <laughs> well, everything makes it good, but what makes it so absolutely good, especially for B'nai Noach, especially for non-Jews, is that this really is the universal aspect of the Torah. Everything we will study here will absolutely apply to a Jew, and it will also absolutely apply to you uh, as a non-Jew. Absolutely everything. It's for both of us because everything we are talking about here is on the level of our souls. And I know you may run into some some rabbis from time to time or some teachers from time to time who make this big differentiation between Jewish souls and non-Jewish souls. Uh, but, but I tell you, and, and I'm not trying to tell you that Jewish souls and non-Jewish souls are the same. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I am trying to say that the difference between us doesn't have anything to do with quality, has absolutely nothing to do with quality. It has to do with mission, the, the reasons that we are here. In other words, the job that we have to do here. And we really, just to, just to get this out, we really, we need to be married to each other. <laughs> uh, each of us, without the other, we don't even make sense. Each of us, without the other, we don't even have a purpose. So just as a husband and wife uh, make a family and make a home and, and make, make the, their own world, that's what we are supposed to do. And the Jewish people have a have a role in that, and the non-Jewish people have a role in that. But we are husband and wife, I'm telling you, and that's the way we should be. Okay. Now that I got that out, let's look at Rabbi Ashlag's five questions. What he actually talks about, and this is—he has a strange way, but it's the most simple way. In fact, let me let me read something to you if I can find it. You know, I brought all these books with me, like because I was wanting to stick to the book. But um, here I've jumped around already and didn't even follow my own outline, which that's not unusual with me. So you'll forgive me, <laughs> but. Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag, uh, his son, his firstborn son, who was who was called the Rabash, Rabbi Baruch Shalom Ashlag, and he also has passed away, in, unfortunately. But he said something about all of the introductions, and that's all we're going to study. We're going to we're going to begin with an introduction to the Zohar, um, and and then an introduction later to the Tenth and they're just introductions. But in Rabbi Ashlag's introductions, he gives us the key to actually understand the whole thing. If we don't have this key, we can read the Zohar until we are blue in the face and we may or may not get something out of it. If we don't have this key, we can study the Ten Road, and we can try to understand all of those things, and we may or may not. This key, because because, because the, the area of Kabbalah, the area of the soul level, the, the, the inner dimension of Torah, it's a science, but it is also a tool that we are to use and able to transform ourselves. This is the way the Torah can come and transform us, and that's the most important thing. So we really do have to have an understanding of what the whole thing is all about, and that's what we want. Anyway, Rabbi Baruch Shalom Ashlag said, My father once told me that he wrote all of the introductions to his books in such a way that they appear outwardly simple, and this is true. And Rabbi Ashlag says, this was intentional in order that only whoever was fitting should see the true depth that lies within them. So I hope all of us will be fitting. We will be worthy to see the true depth. And actually, I'm telling you right now, if you never study anything else in all of all of the uh, level of Kabbalah, if you get just get Rabbi Ashlag's introductions, it's going to change the way you think. It's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you look at yourself, the way you look at the universe, the way you look at other people, the way you look at the Torah, the way you look at Hashem. And it's going to change your, your level of the observance of the commandments and and to understand why we should even observe the commandments. It's going to change all of them. But Rabbi Ashlag, also remember, he is a rabbi. On, I'm telling you, he is on a, a level with all of the great rabbis, all of them. And so his method, even though he cuts to the core of everything, his method is still very rabbinic. We are going to learn, in, in our study with him, we're going to learn a lot of things. Number one, he is constantly showing us that the language of the sages in the Talmud, in the Midrashim, uh, that the language of the sages is extremely precise. It's absolutely precise. He's also going to introduce us to a whole lot of, we'll just learn this just from the way he, he writes and talks to us, a whole lot of rabbinic logic, in other words, the way, the way to logically figure things out. And we also, so he, it's no wonder that he begins his, his introduction with questions. And these are his five questions, and actually the rest of the introduction to the Zohar that he writes has to do with answering these five questions. Number one, he asks, what is our essence? Number two, what is our role as part of the long chain of reality of which we are such little links, meaning meaning history? What's our role in history? And then he says the third, the third question involves a paradox. And I think all of us will be familiar with this. When we look at ourselves, Rabbi Ashlag asks, he says, we feel that we are defective or that we are fallen. We're not what we should be. But, he says, when we look at the Creator who made us, It's only logical that we find we must be creations of a very high degree. And he'll talk about this more. Then his fourth question, he says, God must be good, and he must do only good, and there being no higher good than that which God does. So how is it possible, how in the world can it be that he could then create creatures who right from the very start suffer, who right from the start feel pain, These are good questions, I'm telling you. The next one, he says, how is it possible that an eternal being, because Hashem is eternal, he has no beginning, he has no end, so how is it possible that an eternal being could bring into existence a creature or creatures which are finite, which do have limitations, which die and which do have an end? These are his five questions, and the rest of his introduction will actually be to uh, answer those questions now like any good rabbi you think okay he's asked his five questions so now let's move on to the answers but like all good rabbis before we can uh, answer the five questions he says in order to completely clarify those five questions now we before we even can start about the five questions we must make some other preliminary inquiries in other words we have to ask more questions and he said and set some rules and really the only rule that we set down is the one that you see at the bottom of this page. I'm going to read what he has here. He says, we cannot investigate, he says, the essence of God as he is in himself. This is the number one rule, not just of Kabbalah. This is the number one rule of any level of study in Judaism, any level of study coming from the Torah or from the sages. We cannot investigate the essence of God as he is in himself. Because why? Because, number one, thought cannot conceive of him in any way at all, he says. And we have no notion of God as he is in himself. Okay? But we can and should investigate God in a way that is positive and fruitful, he says. And the only way we can do that is actually by looking at his acts, the things that he does, the things that he tells us, and the way that he behaves. As the Torah tells us, he quotes from 1 Chronicles twenty eight nine. He says, know the God of your father and worship him. And he says, and it's also written in the Song of Unity, from your works, then we can know you. Now, to, just to show you that this is this is the absolute across-the-board teaching, the next uh, the next piece, the passage that's there is actually from the Ramchal. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lozato, in his uh, classic work on uh, it, actually a classic work on classical Judaism it's called derek hashem uh, or the way of i think uh, the way of god is the way it's translated in the english translation but derek hashem the way of hashem and he doesn't mean by the way in that the way that we should walk that's not that's not what that means but it, what what derek hashem means is actually an examination of how god runs the universe exactly how he does it and even though it's really not a kabbalistic work it's a, that book in and of itself is an extremely Excellent introduction to the Kabbalah, to, the, to a Kabbalistic level of thinking and, and, and to understand how how the universe operates. But this is what the Ramchal says. He, by the way, he is uh, another one of my very, very favorite rabbis. Uh, just an unbelievable person. Uh, and, and just just in his memory, it's the year, still the year 2007. The Ramchal was actually born in 1707. And so we're looking at the 300th anniversary of his birth. Uh, He was something else. Anyway, as you can tell, I like the Ramchal. Even maybe more than I like Rabbi Ashwaag, but uh, I love them both very much. Uh, Hashem's true nature, uh, the Ramchal says, cannot be understood at all by any being other than himself. And, again, I get a lot of objections when I make statements like this in, in different places. I, 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 you know, I, I wonder sometimes, uh, you know, people, people will blow up at this a little bit, thinking I'm trying to tell them that they don't know anything about God. Uh, and, actually, that is what I'm trying to tell them. <laughs> we really don't know everything there is to know about God. And his nature, in his essence, we couldn't understand it, even if he even if he didn't let us know about it. Uh, and the only thing that Ramkhal says that we know, absolutely know about him, is that he is perfect in every possible way and that he is totally devoid of every conceivable deficiency. Right on. That's exactly right. And that's the only thing that we actually can slap our fist on the table and know for sure. Anyway, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, you know, I... I think sometimes when people get a little aggravated at this kind of a statement, uh, I think, you know, uh, they do know their God because they keep him in a small box and schlep him around with them, you know, from here to there and there to here. And uh, and that's the reason they think they really know everything about God. Okay, so that's the ground rule. That's the number one rule in the in any level of interpretation or study in Judaism. And now let's go to... Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag's inquiries. These are his preliminary inquiries, okay? And let's let's try to run through them. We're already beginning to. We're on the second half hour, eight minutes into it. So let's just try to read through them as quickly as I can. And this is the downsized version of them. And by the way, all of this that we're that we're working on with Rabbi Yehuda Levis Ashlag, um, this is all coming from an English translation of of his introduction to the Zohar and his introduction to the Ten Sfirot, uh that's in a book called In the Shadow of the Ladder, and, I, Ray, I think that's also is available in your Noahide Nation store for a very good price, by the way, just to, just to tell people. That book is well worth the money. I don't care what you pay for it. It's okay. It is there, and, uh, and, and it will be invaluable to you. However... You know, I could just tell you, oh, buy the book and, and, and read it and study it. Just like I can tell you also to buy the book, Derek Hashem, read it and study it. Uh, but to tell you the truth, the only way you actually learn what's in those books is to sit together like we're doing right now. This is what makes this so important. Sit together and, and go through it uh, and, and really, really examine it and really get it into us. This is the best way. Okay, so the first yeah. inquiry. Rabbi Ashlog says, how can we conceive of creation as being an innovation? Now, this is a, now, can you believe his brain? This, this this brain is something else. How can we conceive of creation as being an innovation, meaning something new that was not already included in God before he created it? Now, that will get clear. And then he says, after all, it must be clear if one thinks about it, that there cannot really be anything that is not included within God. Well, when we looked back at the Arizel earlier in his illustration, and seeing that everything is coming from the Ain't-Soph, absolutely everything. So this is a good first inquiry. Likewise, he says, even common sense tells us that one cannot give something if one doesn't have it within himself or herself to give. I'd like to spend a lot of time on it, but let's try to get... His preliminary inquiries, at least the inquiry now, we may not get to all the answers uh, before the time. Uh, the next time we're together next week, uh, but let's try to just get these in our head. His second inquiry, he says, one might begin to argue that since God is omnipotent, and that's usually what people tell me, you know, well, God can do anything He wants to, and I don't have to know about it. I don't, you know, you know, the, the King James version t- says it, so that's it, and I believe it. I hear that from time to time. Still, anyway. <laughs> So one might argue that since God is omnipotent, then he must be able to create something that is entirely new and which he does not have within himself. Then the question, he says, must be asked or can be asked, what may this reality be concerning which one may determine that it does not exist within God, but that it is a completely new reality? These will become clear. Hang on. I know already you're saying, what in the world is he talking about? Just hang on. The third inquiry, Mekubalim, and that means uh, that's Hebrew for Kabbalist, have said that the soul of man is a part of God. And I put in big capital letters, in the sense, because we have to understand, and this, by the way, is a huge argument uh, within Judaism, uh, within Hasidim and within Mimit Nagdim, opponents to Hasidim within the Orthodox community, they take exception to saying a part of God. And we know that actually Hashem has no parts, okay? Uh, But this is what the the Mekubalim, this is what the Kabbalists are talking about when they say a part of God. It's in the sense that there is no difference, now this is a statement and a half, listen to it, between Hashem, God, and the divine soul that comes from Him, because it comes from Him. Except that God consists of the whole. He is simple. He has no parts, as the Ramchal tells us. God has no parts, and the soul only consists of a part. And then they compare this to a stone that is quarried, the Kabbalists do, from a mountain. Now, already, as I told you before, all of our illustrations, no matter what illustration we use, it doesn't matter, it's inadequate if we're using some kind of image from the created world to compare to the Creator and already we know that we can't know anything about his essence and that nobody can understand him but him, then already this creation has limits to it. So already it's an inadequate. But we use them because we use, in, in in this level of inquiry, we use the language of the branches. And this is a good illustration of what the language of the branches is like because it's all like an upside-down tree. Everything is coming from the roots that are in the spiritual worlds that are above us, and then we have the trunk of the tree coming down, and then we have branches and leaves on the tree, and everything is connected to a particular root. And so the language of the branches means simply that the Kabbalists found an exact word in this physical world that they know connects exactly to its root. That's what it's talking about. But, and, but this illustration, anytime we compare anything to God, that they're all inadequate. But anyway, they compare this to a stone that is quarried from a mountain, he goes on, the stone is split off from the mountain by a blade that is specifically made. In other words, it's a very specific blade. It's not just any blade that, that works. It's a specific blade for that purpose. And his question is, is what could this blade be? What, what, how does God, how does Hashem separate a soul, a divine soul, from himself? That's the question that he's asking. And then he says, but how can we con- even conceive of this as pertaining to Hashem? Let's go on. His fourth inquiry, the framework of evil in the world. Oh, Oyve, we'll have to spend a lot of time on this. The framework of evil in the world. Now, you'll hear this called sitra akhraf, which is simply an Aramaic term from the, from the Zohar, meaning the other side. Okay. You'll also hear it t- called klipot, the klipot, which means the shells. So the framework of evil in the world, Rabbi Ashlag says, is so entirely estranged from God's holiness, that a person can't even imagine such an extreme divergence, such an extreme separation. So how in the world is it possible? We just earlier said everything is coming from him. How is it possible for evil to issue forth and emerge from the Holy One? And not only that, but we even find in the, in the study of the Zohar, in the study of this level, that God, it's God who is entirely holy, that actually sustains the framework of evil. What in the world is going on here? What in the world? These are the questions that in the inquiries that Rabbi Ashlag is going to take us through, and I'm telling you, it will, it will be so good for you. The fifth inquiry. He says that the fifth inquiry concerns the revival or the resurrection of the dead. And then he states to us, he says, look at this paradox again. The body is so abject <laughs> that from the moment it's born, it's destined for death and burial. Why in the world do the dead need to be revived? Can't, you know, Hashem is omnipotent. He can do anything he wants to. Can't he just give the light to to souls, to disembodied spirits without this body? Who wants this body? Who wants it? Not only that, he says, but the sages tell us that when the revival of the dead takes place, now I know most of you aren't going to want to hear this, but you need to know it, that the bodies will be resurrected together with all their blemishes. Oh, they... I thought I was going to get, you know, such a such a new new thing. And it will be, but it's resurrected together with all their blemishes, the sages tell us, so that no one can say that this is someone else. And only after this will Hashem actually heal those blemishes. So we will eventually get a perfect one, not to worry. But he says we need to understand why why does it matter to Hashem that people might say this is someone else? And it matters to him so much to the extent that he, he would recreate those blemishes in a resurrected body that actually then require healing. As you can see, Rabbi Ashlag's mind works overtime, especially into, in, in rabbinic logic. I mean absolutely constantly all of this. Then the sixth inquiry. He says the sages tell us that man is at the center of all reality. And we know that from, from all study of any of the sages. He says all of the higher worlds together, even with this physical world and everything that is in them, the only reason they were created was for the sake of mankind, for the sake of a man. And the sages also even, they they require us, and that that includes all of us also, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, they really require that a person must believe that the whole world was created just for him or just for her. Now Rabbi Ashman comes and says, well, that seems a little difficult to understand that the Creator went through all the trouble to create all of these worlds, meaning uh Briya, Yetzirah, and, and then Asiyah, all of these different levels of universes, just for the sake of this little person who, compared to the reality of this world, he says, has only the value of a hair, and even less value when we compare a person to the reality of all the upper worlds. And by the way, Rabbi Ashlag says, so why 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 does man need all of this anyway? Why does he need if it's all created for him? Why does he need all of these the the world of Atzilut, the universe of Atzilut, the the world of of, of, of Briah or Yetzirah? Why does he need any of that? So all of these questions, everything that we are looking at, all of these inquiries, this is what we have to work in the future. I'm sorry I didn't make actually the next page of this. I didn't think I would really make it this far and that means I probably left out a whole lot that I meant to do but <laughs> don't not, don't worry so let's uh let's actually look though and uh if you'll let me just talk to you for a few more minutes and I have to watch my clock and make sure I don't run overtime don't let me do that Ray I'm I'm bad uh, about not paying attention but let's let's go on in 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 the few minutes we have left and let Rabbi Ashlaw give us give us some beginning to understand this. He, he actually says in order to understand all of these questions and all of these preliminary inquiries, he said there's a, one strategy to be able to understand them is to look at creation as a process and then to examine its end state. He says to look at the ultimate aim of creation. And he says after all, it's not really possible to understand any process of something that's going on while it is still going on, while it is still developing so he says, only by looking at his final outcome can one actually understand it. He says, it's clear that we are not dealing with a creator who created the world without purpose. There is a purpose to the world. in Rabbi Ashlag, sometimes it can be really something. And he says, only some person, someone who had taken complete leave of their senses could conceive of a creator who had no purpose in his creation. Now, and and obviously in Rabbi Ashlag's day there were problems like this. So he says, I know that there are certain self-styled wise men who do not follow the path of Torah, who say that Hashem created the whole of reality. They say He created, but then He left it to its own devices, seeing that the creatures, that they were so worthless that they were not fitting for such an exalted Creator to oversee their little petty petty and uh, despicable ways, he says. And Rabbi Ashnag says this is absolute nonsense. He says, "For would it not be reasonable to assert that we are petty and worth, uh, that we are petty and worth, and pe- excuse me, that we are petty and worthless, unless we had already concluded that we had created ourselves <laughs> with all of our defective and despicable tendencies? But from the moment that we decide that the Creator, in other words, already changed the way you think, the moment we decide that the Creator, who is perfect beyond all perfection," is the craftsman who created and planned our bodies with all of their positive and even their negative tendencies, then we also have to say that from a perfect worker can never issue an imperfect or defective work. Every work testifies to the quality of its maker. What blame may be attached to a shoddily made garment, he says, if it was an incompetent tailor who did the sewing? You see what he's trying to say? And, and to illustrate that, there's a story in the Talmud that he brings up here. Of Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Shimon. who And, and see, if we don't know what, what the background of this and what's going on, then we read this story in the Talmud and we say, how rude of Rabbi Eliezer. Why would he say such a thing? This is what he said. He once chanced upon an extremely ugly man, and he said to the man, how ugly you are. And the man replied to him, Tell the craftsman who made me, how ugly is the vessel you have made. This, is, this is, it wasn't a rude statement, and it's recorded in the Talmud for a reason, and it has to do with this idea we're talking about right here. Cool. Let's go on uh, just a little bit. So Rabbi Ashlag says, so all the philosophers who claim that it is due to our own lack of worth our own despicableness, our own insignificance, that it was not fitting for God to watch over us. And so he just abandoned us and everything's just an accident now. They only publicize their own ignorance. He says, if you were to meet a person who could invent new creatures just so that they should suffer and experience pain throughout all their lives as we do, and not only that, he says, but who would then discard them as worthless without even wanting to supervise them in order to help them a little? Wouldn't you despise such a person? If that was the case, that kind of a case would make us want to despise God. He said, but is it even possible to consider such a thing about Hashem if we know Him? Of course not. So he says, common sense dictates to us that we understand, we must understand the exact opposite of what appears on the surface or superficially to be the case. He's answering the first inquiry. We are extremely good and supremely high beings to the extent that there is no limit to our importance. That's actually what the Torah tells us. That's what Hashem tells us. We are entirely fitting creations for the craftsman who made us. And any lack, he says, that you might like to raise concerning our bodies, after all the excuses one might make, all of those things must fall squarely on the Creator who created us because He created us Together with all of our tendencies, and it's clear that He made us, and we did not make ourselves. Rabbi Ashvad says, He also knows all of the processes that are consequent on our nature, and He even knows all the evil tendencies that He planted within us. But He says, as we have said, we have to look at the end of the process of creation, not at the middle stage of the work. He says, and then we'll be able to understand it all. And He says, there's a good proverb that says, you know, don't show your work to to a fool while you are still in the middle of it. I hope we're getting what he's saying. He's saying so much of the stuff that's taught and said is because people are looking at the work in the middle of it, and they're not even focusing at all on what the end process is is to be. I want to get this last little piece in in two minutes. This This is exactly the way we will end this session, and it's talking about God's purpose in creation. Now, I'm sure most of you already know it, I'm gonna give it to you again. I'm gonna jam it down your throat for as long as we can stay together and really 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 try to uh try to learn it. So what is he says our purpose? He says our sages have taught us that God's only purpose that Hashem's only purpose in creating the world was in order to give pleasure to his creatures. He says it's here. It's on this that we need to put our eyes and we need to focus our thoughts because that is the ultimate aim and purpose of the creation of the world. It's like Rabbi Kessin said one time, he says, we're created in order that every day we should go with Hashem to fun city, (laughs) in a different fun city every day. We're created to receive pleasure. We're created. Hashem wants to give. He wanted creatures which he could be good to. And what absolutely is the greatest possible good that he can give to us, that greatest possible good is himself. He is the source of all good. He is the only truly good thing. So it all has to do with cleaving to him, with being glued to him, with being attached to him. And the only way that we do that is through Torah, through learning Torah, and through thinking Torah, and through doing Torah. And this is the key. Well, I'm going to end now so that... uh, George, I think, can get his self together. Is that okay, Ray, if I uh, begin to close it now? So, George. Uh, not Derik Hashim. The, the other title was In the Shadow of the Ladder. In the Shadow of the Ladder. Uh, by, uh, I think it's translated by, uh, uh, let's see, I can probably tell you. Yeah, by Mark and Yedidia Cohen, but it's In the Shadow of the Ladder, Introductions to, uh, to Kabbalah by Rabbi Yehuda Levashlag. Okay. No, K is not taboo, ex- except to people who don't know anything about Kabbalah, okay? So I, I've just generated a, a habit, just a habit, you know. It's kind of like our own, co- K, uh, own code word. Uh, when I say the K word, you know I'm talking about Kabbalah, okay? Uh, because, uh, you know, that's that's all. So I hope everyone enjoyed it. And, and honestly, and that we did it to please Hashem, let's keep that in the back of our heads. And I'm telling you, we'll, we'll learn a little, we'll learn a little as we go along. It will be good for you. It will be good for me. We'll make God happy with us, and that's the most important thing. So Toda Rabah to each and every one of you. Ray, what do I need to do now? Hit uh, stop recording? Ray, tell me do I need to hit stop recording? I think. Okay, all right. So shalom to everyone. I will see you next week, okay? With God's help, I will see you next week. Shalom, shalom. Have a good week. Have a good Shabbat uh, that's coming up. Shabbat shalom to you in advance. Bye-bye.